from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. While granting bail to journalist and fact-checker Mohammad Zubair on the 20th of July, the Supreme Court observed that when the power to arrest is exercised without application of mind and without due regard to the law, it amounts to an abuse of power. The Apex Court observed that the criminal law and its processes shouldn't be used as a tool of harassment. However, police forces across the country stand accused of using the criminal law to satisfy the political establishment's whims. It has resulted in arrests in seemingly minor cases. It has also resulted in unusual instances where the police of one state has been prevented from arresting someone by the police of another state. The Punjab police team that was taking Tejinder Bagga to Mohali was stopped en route by the Haryana police and in the meantime, the Delhi police have registered a kidnapping case based on a complaint from the politician's father. Now, Rajasthan police not only reached Noida, but also tried to break their house. Although UP police stopped doing this and Rajasthan police had to return to Baran. Former Director General of Police Prakash Singh says he's never seen anything like this before, but squarely blames the political leaders for these incidents. This thing was not there earlier. And police always got all the cooperation. There was full coordination. I mean, the service, the fraternal feeling among the services was so strong that if one officer of that service rang up another officer of another state on a matter where cooperation was needed, uh, in the interest of uh, implementation of uh, criminal justice. There, there was always 100% there was cooperation and uh, there was never any problem. This problem has arisen not because of any distortion in police functioning, not because we have changed, not because our fraternal feelings are less today, but because the politicians want the police to pursue their agenda. Actually, it is due to misuse of the police in pursuit of political agendas by the politicians. It is this thing which has led to the kind of friction and uh, I mean, we have seen the police functioning at cross purposes. After serving as an IPS officer and retiring as the highest police official of Uttar Pradesh, Prakash Singh went to the Supreme Court seeking to reform India's police. A petition filed in 1996 dragged on for a decade before he was victorious in 2006. The Supreme Court agreed with all of his suggestions and told the central government and state governments to implement multiple reform measures. These measures were meant to reduce the political interference in the working of the police. However, since 2006, he's been seeking that states implement these reforms only to see many of them dilute the provisions to ensure that the existing power structure doesn't change. In his new book titled The Struggle for Police Reforms in India, Prakash Singh documents the struggles he faced in his own career, how India's police system has changed over centuries, and his long battle for police reform. In today's episode, he explains why the political establishment doesn't want to lose its hold on the police, how the police can help its own cause, and why releasing the police from the grip of its political masters won't be an instant process. We started by asking him what he thought was the biggest problem faced by the Indian police today. The biggest problem is the legal framework under which function. Uh, it imposes very severe constraints on the functioning of the police because uh, it is placed under the executive. 
And uh, we have to carry out the orders of the executive, right or wrong, lawful or unlawful, whether you like it or you don't like it. That is the legal framework under which we function. And that being so, you see, more often than not, I mean, a conscientious officer finds it extremely difficult in certain situations to carry out these orders. And then it's a very hard choice for him. Either he swims with the current or he finds himself thrown out. That, that I think, is the biggest problem uh, for a for a well-meaning officer who wants to do good to the people, who wants to uphold the rule of law. What, for you, is the ideal police force? The yeah, ideal one? police force would be where the police has functional autonomy. You see, police has to uh, carry out the directions of the executive. I'm not saying that it should be made independent. The government should have the power, the prerogative to uh, lay down the broad policy. But once the policies have been laid down, the execution, the implementation, that should be left to the uh, police officers and the police department. And uh, there should be no um, I mean, interference in the day-to-day affairs. Just lay down the policy and then it is for the police. I mean, you should say that, yes, communal peace has to be maintained. Now, how is that to be maintained? Who is to be arrested? Who is not to be arrested? That should be left for me to decide. And you should not uh, tell me, as happened in, say, Mudafanagar rights, that, look, uh, this man's name should not be included in the FIR. Uh, see, ensure that this man is dead in the FIR, etc. Et that is none of your business. It was noted as far back as 1902 that... Uh, India's police officers were out of touch with reality and even their subordinates. And you also talk about the kind of interference that even they faced, even in colonial times, which, like you say, has continued even after independence. Uh, Could you just talk about why the police is such a convenient tool for politicians and bureaucrats? I mean, I'm glad that you picked up the 1902 comment of the Fraser Commission. In fact, uh, if you read those lines of the Fraser Commission, you get an impression as if this was recorded uh, maybe yesterday. If somebody were not to give you the year that it was 1902, you would say it must have been, uh, say, 2020 or 21, because the police has not changed. Uh, I mean, it is still oppressive, it is corrupt and whatnot. In fact, as I have said in the book also, uh, it is, in, if you examine more uh, deeply, it is even worse than what was in 1902. Why? Two features, the uh, politicization of crime and the criminalization of politics. This was not there in 1902. Police was inefficient, it was corrupt, it did not have the confidence of the people, but it was not politicized. It is. It has got now very heavily politicized. I think that uh, I mean, a large number of officers carry uh, an invisible stamp on their foreheads that this officer belongs to party X or party Y. And that determines the, their fate at the at, uh, at the hustings every time. Every time there's change of government, you find that there are wholesale changes because those whom you consider loyal to you, uh, they are given more important positions of power. Police is a very convenient tool in the hands of the government uh, because you can use the police, A, to protect your flock and to book the opposition. I mean, that, that, that's the simplest thing. You also have criminals uh, on your side. You have bad characters on your side, but uh, they are protected during your regime. And uh, so the police is used in a way to, as I said, to harass the opposition. So this makes uh, police uh, a very strong instrument of oppression. And that is where we lose credibility. That's where we lose respect to the people. That's where we are not able to enforce the rule of law. And that is where a conscientious officer finds himself at odds. As I said, either you swim with the current and you fall in line with the government thinking or you find yourself thrown out. Maybe even false charges may be leveled against you and it's a stranglehold. 
it's a stranglehold. Uh, they, you can just push us in any direction you like. And uh, you, I mean, to start with you, as head of the police force, you want somebody who would be a tool in your hands. And once the head of the police is uh, agrees to uh, uh, play by the, the rules laid down by you or then the rest of the force finds itself helpless. There have been instances when police officers aspiring to be director general of police and heading the police force of their respective states, they would go to uh, the chief minister uh, and say, I mean, these are rare exceptions, but uh, but uh, they, they would say, there are officers who have said, sir, you make me the DGP, I, I'll function as a party worker. Here is a system which uh, encourages such uh, uh, such such abdication of authority, such surrender of authority, and such uh, uh, I mean, complete cotoing uh, before the establishment. You've started your book by writing about ancient systems that have existed and were replaced by the British when they colonized India. What did you find so efficient about them, and what did you think was something that maybe we could learn from it? Uh, the ancient system relied on the local authorities, I mean, the, the local uh, uh, people at the village level to do the policing. Uh, power was dedicated to them. And if somebody lost his property, he was expected to see that the property was recovered. And if the property was not recovered, in spite of his best efforts, it was incumbent on the state to uh, compensate the man who had uh, suffered the loss. But uh, I mean, of course, it went uh, through changes uh, under different regimes. Uh, the Mughals made it uh, more sophisticated and the king became the center of authority. And uh, there were people who were uh, given responsibility for law and order at the state levels. Uh, it kept on evolving gradually. But the British, uh, they overturned the whole system. They relied on zamindars to sort of carry out their orders. And the zamindars became very extortionate and uh, tyrannical. 1857 was a turning point because that is the time when the Britishers felt that uh, they they need to refashion the police in such a manner that this instrument of police is helps them uh, maintain their imperial hold over India. So they, that is the context in which the Act of 1861 was designed. And if you go through the minutes preceding the formulation of the Act, it talks of having a quote unquote politically useful police. That is the kind of police they wanted. They found that this model is ideal for uh, uh, governing a country, uh, governing a colonial country, uh, sort of, uh, and maintaining imperial authority over a, uh, over a subordinate people. So while they had one model for Britain, they had an entirely different model for the colony that they were ruling over. And unfortunately, I mean, every government has found uh, the system more useful. Uh, at the time of independence, one thought that uh, probably the system would get an overhaul and we'll get a new police act. But at that time, I mean, probably the founding fathers uh, of the constitution, um, they, they thought that now that India is free, the police would uh, act as per, uh, of course, it would carry out the orders of the executive, but uh, the executive itself would be very enlightened and their orders would be all calculated to promote the interests of the people. They, somehow they felt that no change is required and that now they are free. The, the police would function with a different ethos, with a different uh, sense of purpose, with a different ideal. And the system worked for quite a few decades because uh, the, the politicians were enlightened and the police officers and the bureaucracy. But that didn't happen. 
Prakash Singh says that by the time the emergency was imposed in 1975, it was clear that the police was acting entirely on the orders of the political establishment. After the emergency, recommendations were made to reform the police, but they largely went nowhere after the central government showed no interest in implementing them. Police forces are a state subject, which means that state governments dictate what reforms can be carried out. Prakash Singh says that states had no incentive to implement these reforms and that while multiple recommendations came over the decades, they mostly just gathered dust. He says that it was on retirement that he decided to try and change things. I retired in 94. I said that no. And my own experience was very traumatic. I mean, at least on three occasions, I, I said the system is this. I have not done anything wrong. I'm trying to improve things. I'm working in the interest of the people. I'm carrying out almost a crusade against corruption. And yet I find myself on the wrong side of the establishment. And the establishment punishes me. At one stage, they, even the Home Minister of India ordered my suspension. Fortunately, their order could not be carried out. These experiences compelled me to do um, uh, serious introspection. There's something inherently wrong with the system under which we are working, where even when you are on the right track and your conscience is clear that you are the right thing, and yet you find that you are being hounded, you are uh, punished, you are being uh, sort of shunted out and insulted, humiliated. I went through all the police commission recommendations that I could uh, uh, lay hands on, especially the National Police Commission, and then I, I decided that uh, we should we should go to the Supreme Court. So that was the background in which I prepared the police, um, the public interest litigation, uh, which was filed in 1996. I I picked up what I thought were the core recommendations of the National Police Commission, which would basically change the working philosophy and the working style of the police. Then ultimately, it was a 10-year-long battle. Initially, I think there was a lot of euphoria that, oh, yes, somebody has decided to uh, catch the bull by the horns and uh, go to the root, uh, root of the problem. But after three, four, five years, uh, the officers, I mean, the police of fraternity, I can say, they lost their, uh, they, they said, no, Prakashing is wasting his breath. Nothing will come out of it. The system will not change. Uh, but uh, my, I mean, my problem is that um, once I'm convinced about the relevance, the urgency, and the need of something, and I start pursuing it, then I won't give up. I, I'll, I'll pursue it, uh, however lonely the battle may, may be. I mean, in my prayers, I would say, I mean, God, um, I'll be happy if I get 50, 60% of my prayers get conceded. But everything, I mean, 100% it was conceded. And now the second part of the battle is going on. I mean, the implementation part. I mean, uh, because uh, we are up against what is the most formidable combination in the country a combination which can defeat any force in Indian defense establishment and their capital. And this is a combination of the, of the politicians and the bureaucrats. If they combine, I mean, even the defense forces have no chance. So police is much weaker than that. But nevertheless, I mean, the, the great consolation, the great comfort is that uh, they, we have a strong ally in the judiciary. No, but uh, judiciary also has its problem. They are judges and judges, just like their officers and officers, some of them were very committed to reforms and they really tried to push the agenda. But uh, the majority of them want to avoid it. Why get involved in it? And uh, because it's a very difficult uh, uh, matter and the government uh, would be antagonistic to anything, uh, any forward movement that they try to uh, initiate or push. So uh, it's proving to be a tough battle. But uh, I think ultimately, I mean, India's future, as I say, is linked with police reforms. You can't have a 
progressive modern uh, nation uh, with, a, with an antiquated feudal police system. That, that's just not possible. You have to change. And the politicians will also one day understand that, yes, this is absolutely essential. Uh, but that moment has yet to come, but it, I'm sure it will come one day. Like you said, you found yourself suspended despite a crusade against corruption. As a personal experience, could you talk about how much incidents like those in turn affected your own work? When I carried out a crusade against corruption, against as the Deputy Inspector General in charge of train, that's uh, that's when the orders of suspension, my uh, my suspension were given. And I, as I said, it was a traumatic experience for me. Now, uh, after such or during such traumatic experiences, uh, two things happen. I mean, it depends on how strong your sanskar is. So a large number of people say that, no, this is not worth it. I mean, this commitment to integrity is not worth it. And they change their style of functioning after that. So in spite of all the uh, humiliation and suffering and insults that were heaped upon me at different periods of time, at least on three occasions, I mean, uh, I came out unscathed. I was uncompromising. Come what may, I will not change. And these are my principles. Uh, you can retain me in service, or you can throw me out of the service, but I will stick to my principles. When I became Director General of Police UP, I mean, one, I mean I, I'm fond of talking to myself. And at that time, I said, look, Prakash, you are now the Director General of Police, Uttar Pradesh. You, yeah, I mean, you are in charge of the most populous state of India and their uh, happiness in the sense that their security, uh, protection of their property, their honor, depends on how good your force uh, delivers. And how good your force delivers depends upon you. So forget all about your personal comforts. Go all out and work as much as possible. And I think uh, at the end of it, uh, there was a definite change in public perception about the police by the time I left. Uh, so you mentioned how you went to Supreme Court and it was a decade-long battle to a judgment. For me, the book also becomes like a lesson in patience given the twists and turns after that verdict. Were you surprised by how states reacted to the 2006 verdict? No, I was not surprised. If you go through a letter which I sent to all the um, director generals of police, and uh, I said the states are going to raise uh, objections to this, and there is going to be a long battle. So, uh, I mean, my letter to the director generals, I impressed upon them the need for internal reform, that you set your house in order at least. I mean, you improve your functioning to the extent you can. I have always felt that there are a long, there are there are several measures which police officers can initiate and pursue on their own. The beauty of these uh, uh, points is that they would not require any legislative uh, legislative backup. They would not require any financial uh, allocation, and there would be no political opposition to these points. So I said, start with these, and uh, if you start with these uh, uh, matters of, as I said, internal reforms then you would have set your house in order. And once your house in order, people generally would, would want that, yes, this is a police which is, uh, which is sincere about, uh, about improving its uh, performance. So why not uh, give them the kind of functional autonomy which they are seeking? But unfortunately, not much has happened on the internal reforms. During the debates, officers keep on saying that we should be doing this, you should be doing that. But the point is, who has stopped you from doing that? I mean, a very basic point, I say, improve the ambience at the police stations. A man entering the police station should feel confident that I'm going to a place where my grievance would be listened to, where my report would be recorded, and some follow-up action would be taken. I mean, that is the kind of um, 
response he expressed from the police. First thing is to comfort him. First, then, of course, you listen to him. Uh, then record it. And then take whatever action is possible within your resources. If you only give the impression that we are doing the very best that we are capable of within our resources, if the complainant gives this impression only that the police within their resources are doing whatever is possible, he'll be more than content. But if you ask for gratification for registration of report or you do not register the report at all and you are interested in minimizing the offense or concealing the offense, uh, reducing its gravity, or because you find that the, uh, the man at the other end uh, belongs to the ruling party, so the case should not be registered. If these kind of things happen, then the man complainant feels very, very uh, I mean, sad and offended. These apprehensions, misgivings, reservations should not be there. And that, and that is possible if there is an attitudinal change in the functioning of the police. It doesn't require any money. It doesn't require any law. It just requires a change in attitude. And why can't we change this thing? And the day we change this, I think that that, that day, 50% of the battle would have been won for police reforms. The Supreme Court has insisted now, I mean, and there have been multiple verdicts which say that the police shouldn't arrest people and sort of enforce this norm of process as punishment. Um, do you believe that the police force, even if it's fully independent, can remain completely isolated from the political pressures of the day? Firstly, let me tell you, things have gone so bad that even if you bring about reforms, uh, you will find perhaps uh, for another five to ten years that police officers are behaving in the manner they were behaving earlier. There will be no change. Because now they have become used to working in a, in a particular manner. Corruption has seeped in. Politicization uh, is, is already there. But uh, you see, even today, there are there are conscientious officers and who want to really uphold the rule of law. But they, they, they just find it very difficult. I mean, I remember one chief minister told me that uh, the uh, senior police officer comes to him and says, sir, in your constituency, sh whom should I post the as uh, the station house officer? Now, that politician was an enlightened man. He said, look, I have nobody to decide. That is your problem. But a large number of politicians want it that way. And in fact, uh, things have gone so bad. I mean, I really don't know how to go into all the uh, multiple uh, layers of problems. I mean, there are some districts where the MLA demands a, a monthly payment, but they they demand a monthly payment. Mahawari, Paisad Lao, SHO Saab. If you want to continue as SHO, you have to give me every month that much amount. So he has to pay that money. Even today, there are uh, important stations where... Uh, which are sold. I mean, it's happening even today. I mean, there was a time, one chief minister uh, who used to fix, all right, you want to become SSP of, say, place X. All right, 40 lakhs is the payment. Uh, so he says, so I can't pay that much. No, all right, then installments were fixed. And somebody was there monitoring the payment of installments, mind you. And the day you defaulted in payment, you were removed from the post. Uh, this, I mean, I have witnessed these things. Uh, things have been... Uh, have been happening. I mean, I mean, I'm not naming, taking any names, but I know the chief minister. I know the station where these things, these things have happened. Once the reforms are carried out, the process of change would start. It, but it would even change would take some time to uh, fully establish itself, fully manifest itself, because uh, I mean, everything has gone topsy turvy. Everything has gone topsy turvy, and there's so much of corruption and. Uh, 
mismanagement and politicization and criminalization and extortion and whatnot. I would say the, the integrity of the administration depends on, is directly proportional to the integrity of the politics of the country. And you know how murky the politics is. So it becomes very difficult for the administration to remain clean under those circumstances. You kind of start your book on a rather despondent note saying that you don't expect to see these changes. Look, I mean, I, I'm just being realistic. I'm 86 now. Uh, you said that uh, uh, my book starts on a pessimistic note. I think it was just a realistic note and I'm still hopeful about the future. I mean, I have somehow faith in the destiny of India, that India has has a great future and we will emerge in course of time as a great power. But we to be a great power, we have to, certain basic changes will have to be carried out. The polity will have to be cleaned up. There's no getting away from it. You can't have these, uh, these criminals sitting in the parliament and the legislature. They will have to be thrown out. The police will have to change its functioning. It will have to function as people's police. Uh, it cannot remain an instrument of oppression in the hands of the executive as it is today. Those changes have to take place. So it's a question of the prime minister and the home minister being convinced uh, about the need of these reforms. Yes, it's a, it's a state list, but even then they are, they are, the center is so powerful. Unless you carry out these changes, modernization grants will not be released to you. You can incentivize that, yes, these changes have to be carried out at the state level. Under the constitution, you have the power. You have the power that, uh, uh, I mean, at least those are states where the ruling party is in power. What is the difficulty? I mean, for example, if today the BJP decides, in 16, 17 states, you can have the transformation uh, tomorrow. But they have the point is, if and when they decide. So any ruling party, once they make up their mind that, yes, certain reforms have to be carried out, then there'll be no stopping the process. Of course, when will we have uh, that kind of leadership at the top? That That's a big question, but I'm very hopeful that changes in the police would also happen concurrently, uh, someday, sometime. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.